Mozart was almost never not writing an opera. He lived for the operatic stage. But, as it happens, he had a creative safety valve. If no suitable libretto was at hand, he could turn, as he often did, to another dramatic form that required no words, the piano concerto. At the beginning of 1785, just before he wrote The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart wrote two concertos, the tragic D minor and another one in a sunny C major. Nothing could be more theatrical than this. Think of it as a piece of stagecraft, characters coming onto a set. Here's one. And here's another. The strings pretend not to notice. But eventually the two characters collide and interesting things start to happen. Strings and wind come together with exaggerated gestures like two overheated prima donnas. while their gentlemen escorts plod doggedly on underneath with the opening theme. that little flurry, that little tiff, is over, a new character, perhaps a clown-like harlequin, puts his head round the door and gets a little response from the flirty flutes and oboes, while the bassoons, in an aside, rue the day they ever met. Underpinned by the basses, the whole thing comes seamlessly together. Could anything be more theatrical? It's a perfect call-and-response operatic ensemble. I've gone overboard a bit, but only a bit, interpreting it all as a scene from a comedy, but only to make the point that the heart of Mozart's compositional technique is operatic, and offstage nowhere more so than in the piano concertos. As a boy, Mozart used to entertain his aristocratic patrons by inventing operatic scenes, accompanying himself at the piano, and adopting the necessary changes in voice and facial expressions as he felt like it. This is a grown-up version of that childhood clowning. It's an operatic scene without words. The orchestration highlights the different characters, like the costumes in a drama. 
Orchestration is also one of the elements that gives Mozart's music greater density, because he always uses it to colour harmony. It's intrinsic, as opposed to the extrinsic use of instrumental colour just as pure effect. And the orchestration, colourful though it is, is extremely subtle, particularly with regard to the use of the single flute. One flute is quite normal in a Mozart piano concerto. The flute shadows the second violins an octave above. We played that at half speed, so that you could hear that the flute lagged behind at the end, moving up half a beat after the violins. It's a decorative device called an appoggiatura, a leaning. Here are the last two notes again, even slower. Dissonances are being suggested without being hammered home. The effect is so subtle as to be almost missed, but it's there, and even if we don't actually hear it, it adds to the quality of the experience. Here it is, back in context. That undertow of sadness that such a striking quality of Mozart's music, as compared to, say, Haydn, is made deeper by that touching use of the flute. It means Mozart's music can swing both ways, into the sun or into the shadows at the drop of a hat. That's one reason why his talent was so suited to opera and why much of his non-operatic music sounds operatic. The whole concept of a piano concerto is pretty dramatic anyway, implying as it does all sorts of relationships between the soloist and members of the orchestral ensemble. So where's the piano in this concerto? What part in the drama does it play? Well, the lead, of course. We've met an assortment of minor characters paving the way for the star. We're on tenterhooks for the big entrance. Did I say big? Well, while the woodwind and strings swap polite conversation, like courtiers awaiting the arrival of the prince, the piano slips onto the stage from the side. At this point, a pause is marked in the score, indicating that Mozart expects a little flourish from the soloist, a cadenza. But as he wrote the concerto for himself to play at one of his subscription concerts, he didn't write a cadenza out. In it, the soloist should call the meeting to order, inviting the strings to recall the opening pages. piano hardly ever concerns itself with such an obvious topic, and taking it as read, moves on to the answering phrase, decorating the repeat almost out of all recognition. It's as if when the prince takes over the main material, it becomes ornamented and gold-encrusted. 
the piano stamps its own character and style of speech on the shared music, saying more or less the same thing, but using fancier words. Put it together to hear the theme in the violins, and listen to how the piano continues with a new theme. It isn't content with recycling the courtier's material, but wants to strike out on its own. The strings provide some subservient support. Mozart pulls another dramatic rabbit out of his showman's hat. The key of G minor rears its baleful head. It introduces a chromatic, darker element, wholly at odds with the healthy white note atmosphere of the C major that we've been in so far. For instance, listen to the violins in these few bars. Add the piano and slow it down, and you can hear the gentle clash as the piano rises to a top C natural against the violin's C sharp. Again, there's that suggestion of subtle dissonance. Mozart is spicing up the music, adding to the total experience, even in such a fleeting moment as that. And, alongside the dissonance, there's that undertow of sadness emphasised by those clashes. G minor was always an important key for Mozart. When he uses it, you have to take notice of the fact. And particularly in a sunny, operatically cheerful movement like this one, the use of the key of G minor seems almost disproportionate. It's difficult to see how Mozart's going to be able to resolve the sudden tensions here within this one movement. In a way, this passage seems not to belong to this concerto. It's as if we've stepped outside the opera house for a moment into a different world. That becomes even clearer if you compare the start of this section to a strikingly similar passage in the great G minor symphony written three years later. How conscious was that connection in Mozart's mind when he came to write that symphony? It's one of those imponderables. More than likely, Mozart's mind turned naturally in that melodic direction when he wrote in the key of G minor. But it's another factor that gives this moment in the concerto added significance.
And with one of those instant changes of mood, characteristic of the mercurial Mozart, the piano gives us that new tune in a sunny G major. That G minor episode is never heard again, at least in this movement. Such, it would seem, is the generosity of the operatic mind. Wait till the last movement, though. This significant moment can't just be ignored like that, particularly by someone with Mozart's symmetrical turn of mind, always concerned with questions of balance and form. But the harmonic complexity that the minor key suggested seems to have let something loose. It's released Mozart from the clear water of C major and allowed him to indulge in even greater perplexities. Here's what's going on in the orchestra without the piano. The strings want to return to the opening theme. But listen to the sustained chords in the upper woodwind as well. Now that's harmonically piquant enough, but listen to what the piano is doing at the same time. The piano is decorating the harmony with what's called broken chord figuration. Nothing particularly strange in that, at least to our somewhat jaded 21st century ears. But here's our pianist playing it again and obligingly highlighting the many moments when Mozart bends the notes chromatically. Our equally obliging orchestra wait while he stays on his little twinges. Almost unbelievably, in each bar there are about eight dissonances that break all the rules of harmony. It's only when you play it at this speed that you realise precisely what notes Mozart has actually written down. It should remind us of just how much we take for granted in Mozart without ever stopping to think about what he's really doing. It must have been this and similar passages in the concerto which caused Mozart's father, Leopold, to write, Several passages simply do not harmonise unless one hears all the instruments playing together. But even then Leopold found the harmonic audacities hard to swallow, because he went on, But of course it is quite possible that the copyist may have read a sharp for a flat in the score or something of the kind, for indeed it is not quite right. One effect of these passing dissonances is to make the music sound more complex and more brilliant. This is certainly an extrovert concerto. It's easy to be seduced by the surface brilliance because it's so beautiful. But it's worth looking deeper because there's always something underneath to think about at the same time. For instance, there's the way Mozart toys with the motifs he set up at the beginning of the movement. Even the simplest idea can reveal unexpected possibilities in Mozart's hands. At the end of the first section of the movement, the exposition, Mozart reaches a new key in which he introduces what sounds like a new theme. 
but it turns out to be a variation of what I called the Harlequin theme, the simplest two-note idea. And, to make the point, the woodwind follow with the original version. This is what I mean by Mozart provoking listeners to more thought. He's not gone down the traditional route of presenting the theme and then immediately varying it. He presented the theme five minutes ago and left it hanging. Then he surprises us with what seems like a new theme and a split second later turns round and demonstrates where it came from. It's a deeper and more satisfying intellectual experience, even while we enjoy the apparent newness and the piquancy of the chromatic turns of phrase. After the development, the recapitulation recalls the material of the opening of the concerto in order. But, as I mentioned earlier, the theme reminiscent of the G minor symphony never comes back. We have to wait till a later movement for that element to return, and for the strength of its gesture to be resolved. But my talking about the musical elements in the piece so much shouldn't lead anyone to think that the operatic world has been left behind. Mozart provides a wonderfully unexpected end to the movement. The piano's been given its chance to shine in its solo cadenza, and the orchestra rounds things off. But the big gestures vanish, and one by one the characters leave the stage. It's like the end of one of Mozart's great comic ensembles. The characters have exhausted themselves with their shouting and sidle gently off, tiptoeing back to their dressing rooms. <laughs> And so we come to the second act. Sorry, movement. But I do think anyone playing Mozart's concertos should have a highly developed understanding of theatre, for without it the spirit of the music is lost. So what can we make of the now celebrated second movement? It was made particularly famous by its use thirty-odd years ago in the Swedish film Elvira Madigan. The name of the film is still attached to the concerto, although a whole generation of listeners have grown up who haven't seen the movie. The film mustn't be used as a tool to interpret the music, but I think the reason the music became so popular was because it felt so right. The film was about the impossibility of perfect human happiness, something Mozart understood profoundly well. The bittersweet reticence of this second movement parallels exactly the fleeting, dreamlike quality of the attempt by Elvira and her lover to escape from the world.
There's a veiled, nocturnal quality about that music which Mozart was to pick up on a few months later when he came to compose the garden scene in The Marriage of Figaro. To my mind, it particularly recalls Susanna's great aria in the last act, when she's waiting in the dark, disguised as the Countess, in order to trap the Count in his infidelity. For one thing, the key's the same, a rich F major, and there are clear parallels in the orchestration of the accompaniment as well. But most of all, there's that remarkable sense of time suspended, of whispering breezes and profound meditation. In the concerto, Mozart's orchestration seems to prefigure that sound. It's a remarkable texture. A plucked bass, unusual enough in itself, supports a pulsating accompaniment in violas and second violins. They all accompany a gently arching theme on top. Mozart directs the upper strings to play with their mutes on, and the cellos and basses to play pizzicato. To judge exactly how subtle it all is, here's what it would sound like without any of that upper strings unmuted and basses bowed. A less inspired composer would have been quite happy with that texture, but Mozart veils the sound, removes the warmth, extracts the bass, and makes the whole thing sound incredibly fragile. Thank you. 
It has, to quote and misuse a famous phrase, something of the night about it. It is a nocturne. And towards the end there, Mozart allows in the dark thoughts of the night. It really is remarkable how quickly and imperceptibly he could change the mood from calm to troubled. It's the second violins and the bassoon who muddy the moonlit waters. Take them away, and the music remains pure and reflective, although the harmonies are still striking. Again, a less inspired composer would have been perfectly happy with these wonderfully rich bars. This is Mozart's troubled and troublesome element. The second violins and first bassoon hold the note on the last beat of each bar over onto the first beat of the next bar. Here it is with the violas, so that you can hear each clash in its most poignant form. It results in the most extraordinary clashes of harmony on the first note of each bar. Listen for that violin and bassoon line in these bars. Somehow the muted sound of the music makes these harmonies more acceptable. But it is harmony that goes way beyond anything else written at the same time. When the piano takes over the main melody, two things happen. One is unique, as far as I know, in the orchestral music up to that time, although Mozart did go on to use exactly the same technique in Susanna's aria, the strings, as a body, take over the pizzicato accompaniment. Secondly, the prominence of the piano line brings out the huge leaps in the melody. They have to be heard as a single voice. are similar leaps in Susanna's nocturnal aria, and highly expressive they are too. This slow movement is an oasis of calm separating the comic hurly-burly of the outer movements, just as Susanna's aria is a moment of profound self-realization, contrasting with the confusion in the minds of the other characters in the opera. 
It's the truth of Mozart's emotional response that makes his operas so unforgettable. The comedy of Figaro can't disguise Mozart's deep understanding of the human condition, any more than the broad humour and slapstick elements of his next opera, Don Giovanni, make it any less demonic and profoundly disturbing. Incidentally, in this context, it's fascinating to note that the music Mozart wrote immediately before this concerto was the demonic D minor concerto, curiously prefiguring the emotional world of Don Giovanni. And why is the emotional world of Mozart so telling? Possibly because it's so restrained. Just as the emotion threatens to get out of hand, the voice of reason is always there to calm things down. Nothing could be simpler than that characteristic little cadential phrase, but hardly anything more effective. And once again, the orchestration gives it weight. The combination of flute and bassoon, two octaves apart, is pure Mozart. The parallels of this second movement with Susanna's aria also extend to the way the music's put together. It's seamless, with one instrument or group of instruments maintaining the melodic line throughout. There's little or nothing of the mosaic-like construction of the outer movements. And at the end of the movement, Mozart again prefigures the structure of his aria. Just as Susanna's ornate phrases twist around the woodwind in Figaro, so here, in the concerto, the piano joins in those sumptuous, dark, anguished harmonies from before and decorates them in an agonisingly beautiful way before dancing gracefully off stage. That movement casts an extraordinary spell. And so you only have to hear the first few bars of the finale to realise that we're back in the land of the multifarious living after that sojourn in dreamland. 
That jaunty little tune is exactly what Mozart's audience would have expected in a concerto finale. Simple and direct, as they would also expect the design of the movement to be overall. We're probably setting off in a rondo, a simple formal layout where a main theme alternates with other themes. But it is more complex than that. It would be a great mistake to write off this movement as a light-hearted antidote to all the previous complexities. It is that, but it's also far more than that. Again, the world of operatic characters is never far away. Take that second phrase apart. The strings are answered by the oboes. The oboes echo the violins. They almost seem to agree with them. But that single flute comments on the sidelines. And the bassoons add their own rather sarcastic contribution. As you'll hear when it's all back together again, the bassoons' remarks add an edge harmonically. This is complex stuff, not one unified orchestral message, but a comic riot among different characters. The pitter-pattering across the stage continues until the piano enters. In the first movement, the soloist had sidled in before taking control. Here, Mozart makes provision for a commanding flourish of an entry. After all, the character's well established. There's no need for him to pussyfoot around. At the end of this, the piano leads off on another adventure. It sounds perfectly normal, initiated by three solid notes outlining the home key. But those notes are almost identical in placing and effect to the insistent G minor theme from the first movement, which, remember, never came back. The similarity is too close to be ignored. We feel a connection, particularly as, in a sense, we've been left wondering what happened to the G minor idea. This may be a surprising concept. Thematic cross-relations between movements at this period were virtually unheard of. But, accidental or not, it can't be ignored, and the effect is to swing the comic finale into the orbit of the events of the first movement. As it happens, it's not the only shared idea in the piece, so Mozart can't have been totally unaware of the connection. We come to a point midstream where the characters seem a little perplexed. As if to mark a point of disquiet, the piano proceeds to have an argument with the woodwind. This is something straight out of the theatre. It could so easily be a dispute between two operatic characters, slightly bad-tempered to start with, and getting increasingly stroppy. Put back the piano right hand, 
and the discussion becomes energetic, passionate even. But what's that little sliding turn doing at the end? It seems to emerge perfectly logically from the rest of the music, but we've heard it before. Remember this stirring passage from the first movement? The similarity, once again, is striking. For Mozart, it was a standard closing figure, but it inevitably recalls the first movement. Like the earlier fleeting reference back to the G minor episode, it adds to the peculiar cohesion of this thematically varied piece. And it all happens at a significant point in the rondo, marking the end of the middle section, the point of greatest tension. The main theme returns, one last cadenza, and the piano brings back the rondo theme for the last time. The curtain comes down with a flurry of brilliant semiquavers. It sounds such a simple movement that the music carries an almost unclouded innocence. It's very easy to dismiss Mozart's last movements as mere antidotes, lightweight foils to the really meaty stuff earlier. But this is a truly complex movement, all the more so for its apparent simplicity. Mozart links the whole concerto together with his subtle references and sly flashbacks, but you don't notice the artifice. It's just there to deepen the experience and satisfy the intellect. And yet, for all its intellectual depth, Mozart, quick on his feet as always, gives the last movement this wonderfully light-hearted surface, the necessary antidote to the extraordinary middle movement. And in the operatic context, it looks forward to Figaro and the happy ending. We've had the emotional turmoil, the profound insight, and the climactic denouement. This is the final chorus. The looks back are vital. We have to acknowledge the depth of the experience we've been through. But the issues have been satisfactorily resolved in these final moments. There's no leaving the stage this time, but a joyous celebration of unity and humanity. Thank you. 